If you've ever visited a county fair, you've no doubt noticed that they always have a large selection of games to be played on the midway. You know, those different booths that have things where you can try to toss rings over milk jugs or pick up a duck and see if it has the lucky number or color under it. And if luck is indeed with you and the game's not too badly rigged, you may just win a prize. And of course, a Carnival employee will be happy to take your money or ticket for this opportunity. There's one that I used to like when I was a kid that I haven't seen in a while. I don't know if they still do this one, but it used to be where you would walk up to the person who was running the game, the carnival employee, hand them your ticket, and they were supposed to guess either your age or your weight or your birth month. Some of you remember that. I liked it when I was a kid because I thought there is no way they could guess my birth month. They can look at me and think they know how old I am. My weight's not that hard. But maybe if I, if I go up there and have them guess my birth month, they'll be wrong. And they usually were. The reason was I didn't wear a birthstone. I'm sure that's how that would work, is they look for birthstones on people, jewelry, to see if that gave them a clue. Otherwise, they lost that one. Sometimes, apparently, too, if you have them guess your age or your, age or your weight, they would, tell, they would deliberately guess wrong just so you'd feel really flattered, and they'd still end up having the money. So <laughs> that's how that game worked. Sometimes, though, this game is easy to play because you can tell what somebody looks like, you can guess different things about them, but what if you couldn't? What if the game were played with a crucial adjustment where you couldn't see the person? Maybe just had no, no way of visually getting an idea of what they looked like or what they sounded like. How would you guess the age? How would you guess the gender identity? What about marital status or income? Could you tell any of those just by a few things that didn't have to do with seeing the person? My son and I were talking just yesterday about how I kind of used to play this game in the fast food drive-thru. When you take an order on the drive-thru, of course, you'd hear the voice, but you'd never see the person. And I would always somehow still get a mental image of what this customer was going to look like when I worked at a fast food drive-thru. Then when they came around to pay for their order, sometimes I had been so close to right, I didn't even really think about it. Other times, I was so far off, it was really a surprise to see the person was a different age than I expected or their car was a really fun color I hadn't expected. There was just something about them I hadn't been able to place from their voice, or even their order. My son astutely pointed out they ordered a whole bunch of food. It was either a large group or somebody that loved to eat a lot. But it was fun to play that game at the drive-thru and kind of figure out who people were, just from little clues, what music they were listening to in the car, those sorts of things. The truth is, it's even easier to guess these things sometimes without seeing a person if they have a smartphone. Smartphones, as you know, download, if you have one, download a lot of apps, just like Facebook that I was pushing earlier. We use it not only to make phone calls, of course, but to keep track of calendars, to play games, to take pictures. And a lot of times they've said they've been able to do statistical studies and figure out just from the apps you've downloaded, maybe your age or your gender, your income level, or your marital status, or your taste in clothes or music, they can figure out a lot of things by which apps you choose, even when it doesn't seem like it's that overt. Researchers recently cross-referenced the app usage and demographics of 3,700 people to determine which personal attributes correlated and found that they could predict gender, age, marital status, and income between 61 and 82% of the time correctly. To put it another way, you are what you download. If you have the Pinterest app on your phone, for example, they thought you most likely identified as a woman. If you're over the age of 52, you're more likely to listen to iHeartRadio. If you're younger than that, you might choose SoundCloud. 
I use Spotify, I don't know what that says about me. If you're an avid use of Uber, you're likely single since most married people that live in a city probably already have a car to haul around their family. Your choice of app for restaurant reviews even says a lot about your income. If you're earning more than 52,000 a year, for some reason you're more likely to check out Foursquare, whereas persons with a lower income than that, or I'm sorry, you're more likely to check out Yelp, whereas persons with a lower income than that might check out Foursquare. And I have to add, if you don't have a smartphone at all, that probably says a lot about you too. Such as you're a lot more productive and have a lot more time to engage in the world around you than the rest of us. Hats off. Today. Not only do your app choices say a lot about you, they also make it possible for the internet to know you better than maybe even your family and friends. And I think about that. Sometimes if I'm trying to shop for a surprise gift for somebody, the internet knows about it and then that might pop up my ads and they might look over my, my shoulder and see that on my screen. One time Amazon sent out an email thanking me for buying a shirt. The problem was the shirt was for my son and it went to his email address too and the surprise was ruined. The internet knew more about me than he did at that point. And it's really eerie the way if you shop for one thing on the internet, the ads start popping up everywhere. It just remembers and it knows that you looked for that particular thing. Your data usage can reveal the real you in many ways. It would have been a lot harder for people in the ancient world to guess your age and weight given the many layers of robes and the short life expectancy, the way people tended to age more rapidly because of different standards of medical care or, and dental and et cetera, people just aged faster. And of course, the complete lack of cell phone coverage and Wi-Fi meant they didn't have phones to look at. That didn't stop people from trying, especially when people didn't quite fit the mold of what was expected. The crowds had been observing Jesus for some time when we get to our passage today that Jim read for us but no consensus had been developed. In a world where a person's demographics involved what I will say was a three-part analysis, gender, genealogy, and geography, how you identified, where you lived, and who you were related to. Jesus was an outlier. He didn't fit into any of these easily, except maybe the gender one. Consider the data sets about him to this point. He was born in unusual circumstances and of questionable parentage. He was from a poor family, but his birth threatens an actual king, Herod, and attracts foreign diplomats, the Magi. Rather than stay at home and take on the family business as expected of a Jewish male, as was traditional, he becomes a wandering teacher who just leads a bunch of people around the country. Rather than take on a wife, which was also expected, he remained single and unattached. He has no visible means of income, Yet he spends a lot of time at parties and even provides food for thousands. He performs incredible miracles, but never seems to use his power to benefit himself. He casts out evil spirits, but at the same time, people accuse him of being in league with them. He is a student of the law of Moses, but teaches sometimes that those laws don't go far enough. He appears to be a righteous person, but he hangs out with the dregs of society, he breaks Sabbath rules, and he even eats and drinks with unsavory company. He talks about eternal life, but he seems to be obsessed with death and sometimes even his own coming death. It's little wonder that people were sometimes confused about who he was. The guessing game took place every time he appeared, no doubt, and in fact, even among his closest associates. Which brings us to our passage in Matthew 13 today, where Jesus turns 
to the Matthew 16 today, in which Jesus turns to the question of his real identity. Jesus and the disciples arrive in the district of Caesarea Philippi. This fact is significant for the dialogue that follows. Pagans living in that region had a cave outside the city that they believed was the residence of the Greek god Pan, a half-man, half-goat being who was the god of fright. Panic is the same root word as the god Pan. And they believed that cave was even the entrance to Hades, the underworld or place of the dead. Now the city Caesarea Philippi was also significant because it was built by Herod Philip in honor of Caesar, hence the name Caesarea and Philippi for Philip. It was to differentiate it from another city called Caesarea Martima that was built by Herod the Great on a different part of the coast. So it seems important that this place was identified with two different rulers, Caesar and Philip. And it was also identified with a place that for the pagans personified evil and death right there in that city. So it's interesting that this is the backdrop Jesus uses to ask the disciples who they believe that he is. It's like he's playing a game with his disciples, guess who? Well, his actual question was not guess who, but who do people say that I am? What's the buzz about me right there, right now? What are people out there saying? The answers given by the disciples as to what the crowds thought were all connected to the prophets. Each answer they give ties Jesus to a certain prophet. Interestingly, most Jewish leaders of that time believed that prophecy had ceased, that they weren't receiving real active prophecy in their day. Sound familiar? A lot of people seem to feel that's true now, too. So I guess it's just always the case we don't recognize prophecy when it's right in front of us. However, the disciples, after spending time with Jesus, and the crowds, after spending time around him, were willing to acknowledge, maybe prophecy is coming back. There was always an expectation that it would come back, after all. They expected specific prophets to come back, such as Elijah. So it's not surprising that the disciples and crowds were already looking for another Elijah. Now, you might remember some thought that John the Baptist was Elijah when he came onto the scene. But after he was beheaded by Herod Antipas, they continued to look, and now some thought maybe that prophet Elijah returning was Jesus. Many of Jesus' miracles seemed to mirror those of Elijah, after all, raising the dead being one. Elijah had also raised the widow's son. However, Jesus also did things such as announce God's judgment on unrepentant cities, and downplayed the role of the temple in one's faith. So he sounded more like another prophet, Jeremiah, when he did that. The crowds kept trying to link Jesus with prophets, with people they knew from the past, seeing his ministry as one that was pointing to some future figure who would finally overthrow systems of injustice and oppression, introduce the kingdom of God, and rescue them from the exile and subjugation. In other words, the crowds didn't necessarily think Jesus was the Messiah, they thought he was just the next in line to set people up to be ready for the Messiah. But those closest to Jesus began to suspect there was something more to it. They were around him enough that they had an idea he was more of a prophet. They were beginning to realize he may be the actual one for whom they had been waiting. Some of the crowd even began to ask that. But when Jesus asked his closest disciples the point of question, okay, when we talk about the crowd now, who do you say that I am? It's a question that will not only define who he is, but it also tells us a lot about his followers. Simon Peter answered with confidence, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Simon has examined the evidence and concluded that Jesus is the real deal. 
But while Simon gets Jesus' title right, he still doesn't quite understand exactly everything that it means. Like most Jews of his time, Simon had certain messianic, messianic expectations, an idea of what this Messiah would look like, that a real earthly kingdom would come immediately, that all pain and suffering would cease immediately, perhaps that Jewish people would be put in power in their region or even the world. The problem with expectations is they often narrow our vision, allowing us only to see the exact thing that we're, thing that we're looking for and miss other things that would actually fill the role. Clearly, Simon's vision of Messiah and son of the living God is like the crowds, limited by what he's seen in the past. If you own a pair of blue-handled scissors, I pulled that out of nowhere, I think because I have one in my house, and you're looking for scissors, you're going to be looking everywhere for the blue handle. I think I experienced this in my house a bit. But if you have, if in the meantime, somebody's gone out and bought another pair of scissors with a black handle or a red handle, you might completely miss those sitting right on the counter where you're looking for those blue-handled scissors. We get one idea in our mind. It's harder to spread it out. It's no wonder that Simon Peter and the disciples had a bit of tunnel vision as to what to expect from Messiah. Simon knew that God had promised King David that royal descendants would be his adopted children. So it was natural for any successor to the throne to be seen as the son of the living God, anybody that took the throne of Israel. The Messiah, which means anointed one, would be one of those royal descendants. When Simon confesses Jesus' identity as Messiah and son of God, he's not thinking of Jesus the way we do, clearly. He's not thinking about somebody who died on the cross and came back. That hadn't happened yet. He's certainly not thinking of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. That's just an idea that didn't come to theology until after Christ returned and the Holy Spirit came to us. So he's not seeing that heavenly, all-powerful Jesus that we think of now. He's maybe ascribing to Jesus a role that he's going to take on on earth. Saying, you are the Messiah, might be kind of like saying to somebody you see with a promising political future, oh, I think you're going to be the next senator or the next president. Or we might say in our circles in the church, oh, you're going to be the next bishop. With a bang. <laughs> it's clear from these that the from these things that Peter said that that's what he was expecting. In the next session, section when Jesus begins to predict his death and resurrection after Simon's bold confession, well, technically correct, it's clear that Simon just didn't have the whole messianic picture. It will take the cross and the resurrection to complete their idea of who Jesus is and show Simon the future. Still, as we said, Simon had the title Messiah, right? And Jesus is happy about this and tells him so. You can sort of picture him saying, Simon, that is awesome. You totally get it. Well, actually, his words were more like, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God in heaven. In a place where Caesar is hailed as a god and the realm of death stands in a cave right nearby, Simon acknowledges that the one person who is really worthy of worship is Jesus revealed, revealing God. God revealed this to Simon, Jesus says, and now, standing here next to the supposed gates of Hades, Jesus proclaims that it is on Simon, who he now calls Peter, a word that means rock. On this bedrock confession, the church will be built. Even the forces of Hades and death will not prevail against it. Even though we know that Peter the rock will later throw some cracks, he's still going to build that foundation for us. Peter's own identity is changed because he acknowledged the truth of Jesus, so no longer Simon, but Peter. Wherever he goes from now on, he will be identified 
with his association with Christ. This brings up an important question for those of us who want to follow Jesus as well. Would we be easily identified by our association with Jesus? Age, weight, gender, education, income are not what we're talking about here. Jesus wants to identify with him as our Lord and Savior, and then to work on his behalf, imitating him in all that we do. This identification means that we are willing not only to share in Jesus' blessings, but also to share in Jesus' suffering, in Jesus' cross. Not physically, not necessarily being tortured to death, but certainly being willing to sacrifice at times the things that would make us the most happy or comfortable in order to try to make everybody in the world an equal level of happy and comfortable. Things such as bringing in water and leaving it on the patio, a simple act such as that brings Jesus' life into somebody's, somebody's world as they walk by in that 110 and worse heat on a weekday morning. The things that we do give into the food bank, reaching out to Crossroads Mission and other groups in the community as we often do through our fundraisers, are ways this church is trying to show that we have been changed. Have you been changed personally? Can you say not only I am, insert your birth name here, but also I am a loving and beloved child of God. I am like Christ. I am United Methodist. I belong to United Methodist women or United Methodist men, or maybe not even about denomination or religion, but I believe in furthering the better good. I, I believe that I am a devoted citizen. I try to reach out and help people. Has your identity been changed to be like that from Jesus? Or maybe even blessed enough to feel that way for a very long time? How do you continue to live that out, to show everybody that that identity is who you are? The app on your phone might say a lot about you, but this is really a private matter between you and between you and God. The things on your phone reveal information to the internet, to internet users and people who collect your data. But the things that you do in your own life reveal information to the people around you and help build your relationship with God and with Christ, who sees your true heart in the Holy Spirit, who guides you in the service. Following Jesus might be personal, but it's not meant to be private. Even Peter would later deny knowing Jesus. He didn't get away with it for long. People already knew he was associated with Jesus because of the good he had been done, been doing before. It stuck with him. Anybody we meet, we would hope we would be able to guess by our actions, the way we carry ourselves, or the things that we do, that we belong to Jesus. They shouldn't have to guess. Jesus would sternly warn his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah at this stage of his ministry. He didn't want it out there in the open just yet. Well, now we're in a, what we call a post-resurrection society. The secret is out there, and we don't have any restrictions. We can and should be sharing with people our beliefs about Jesus as the one who ushers in God's will for the world, the one who modeled how to care for and love one another, the one who showed us through death and resurrection that evil does not have the final answer. Death is not the final say. God is more powerful than life or death or evil or any of those things that surround us. Can we show that faith as we relate to others? Jesus would sternly warn the disciples, but did not warn us. We're called to do the opposite. If people are going to be able to discover Jesus, we may be that first application, that first interface they have. Just as an application is a tool that helps you do things easier and helps you talk to the computer, we could be a tool to others to help them see that face of Jesus and learn how to relate to him. And once they do, 
The good news is, just like us, they won't need an app. And they can go on to love and be part of Jesus, too. May we all share this faith boldly in whatever way we are called and the strengths we are given. And know that God loves and honors each one of our gifts when we give it earnestly. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.